Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you this Thursday evening, this evening where we have the opportunity to reflect upon this wonderful topic of theology of the body. I am without my sidekick this evening, Ivan Mora, so I am flying solo. If you have any questions for me, please do not hesitate to email me at J-H-O-L-L jmj at yahoo.com and of course you can always contact me through my website just hit the contact uh, link there and that will uh, give you the opportunity to send something to me by way of email so with that what i would like to do is is really jump into tonight's subject matter we are in our ninth week of a 12 week uh, series on theology of the body and this ninth week allows us to talk about Uh, some very important subject matter, as we will be focusing in on this call to be celibate for the kingdom of heaven, this call of celibacy, and how we are to also understand, certainly, celibacy in light of marriage, in light of everything that we have been talking about. I mean, we have learned up to this point that to be human means that we are called to be in communion, communion with God and with one another. As we have already talked about, this is a call to eternal ecstasy, a kind of rapture, if you will, a bliss. We have also learned throughout that this call to communion with God and with all humanity is stamped in our bodies as male and female. Remember Genesis 1.26, let us make man in our image and likeness, the triune God. Let us make man in our image and likeness. And what is that subsequent verse? Male and female, he created them in his image and likeness. As we have talked about in the past, the next time you see image and likeness is when Adam and Eve are bearing life to Seth. Huh? Seth is in the image and likeness of Adam. So when two become one, there is this profound imaging this profound triune language going on. Why? Because in the Trinity, you have the Father eternally loving the Son, and in return, the Son eternally loving the Father. And as the two become one, of course, we have the third person, the Holy Spirit, the love shared between the Father and the Son. So it is right that we see when two become one, we have an image of the Trinity. Wonderful reflection that we can gain when we begin to think about the stuff of theology of the body as it relates to imaging God. Now, that's the stuff of marriage. This evening, we're going to be talking about celibacy. And it's interesting, John Paul II makes the point in not only theology of the body, but also his apostolic exhortation on the family in the modern world, that ultimately... There are two vocations. He says, Christian revelation recognizes two specific ways of realizing the vocation of the human person in its entirety to love, marriage and virginity or celibacy. 
either one is in its own proper form and actuation of the most profound truth about man of his being created in the image of God. So where does John Paul II go when he wishes to explain the language of celibacy? Well, he goes where we all go, to sacred scripture, in particular, the Gospel of Matthew chapter 19. There, we read of Jesus restoring the permanence of marriage according to God's original plan. And in doing this, his disciples concluded that it was better not to marry at all. Okay? In response to their contention, Jesus takes the discussion to a different plane altogether when he says, For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have, made, who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In the Christian tradition, when we use the language of eunuch, what do we mean to say? A eunuch for the kingdom of heaven is someone who freely forgoes sexual relations in anticipation of that state in which men and women neither marry nor are given in marriage. Celibacy for the kingdom, therefore is a sign that the body whose end is not the grave is directed to glorification. That is John Paul II in Theology of the Body. He goes on to say, It is a testimony among men that anticipates the future resurrection. Okay? Christopher West makes note here, and I like this. In a sense, the celibate man or woman steps beyond the dimension of history while living within the dimensions of history, and proclaims to the world that the kingdom of God is here. The ultimate marriage has come. It is to remember, my friends, everyone is called in one way or another to communion because the marriage of Christ and the church is the ultimate fulfillment of every longing for love. If you have been a faithful listener to this particular series on Theology of the Body, we have spoken in length about the relationship between Christ and the church and how that helps us to better understand our Christian and Catholic vocation in marriage and also here in celibacy. Because why? The marriage of Christ and the church is the ultimate fulfillment of every longing of love. Christian celibacy, therefore, is not a rejection of sexuality. It points us to the ultimate purpose and meaning of sexuality. For this reason, Paul says, the two become one flesh. What reason does St. Paul give? Man and woman become one flesh as a sign or sacrament of Christ's eternal union with the church. This is that passage we have talked about, right? Those who remain celibate for the kingdom forego the sacrament of marriage in anticipation of the heavenly reality, the marriage of the Lamb. If it is not good for man to be alone, Christian celibacy reveals that the ultimate fulfillment of solitude is found only in union with God. In a way, we can say the celibate person freely chooses to remain in this, what John Paul II would call, ache of solitude in this life in order to vote all of his longings to the union that alone can satisfy. That union that is, par excellence, what we see between Christ and his church. You know, the word celibacy today 
does not usually go over so well. Does not usually convey the deeper meaning of what we are talking about now. Often it is seen as a negative word in the sense that it, it tells us what, what those people who are celibate are not doing, huh? <laughs> Eunuch uh, can even have worse connotations. I, I think it would be better, and many have said this, that when we talk about celibacy, perhaps we would do better to define this vocation in terms of what it embraces and anticipates versus what it gives up. And what it embraces and anticipates is the heavenly marriage, that marriage that is highlighted in Revelation 19.7, the marriage supper of the Lamb. It's interesting how we think about celibacy. A survey recently circulated among priests posed a question something like this. Should celibacy be a free choice, or should it continue to be imposed by the church? As Christopher West notes, contrary to widespread opinion, the church forces no one to be celibate. Christ's words clearly indicate the importance of the personal choice when he says, there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs. Huh? John Paul II highlights this. If someone were forced into celibacy, it would be no more legitimate than if someone were forced into marriage. Huh? Many today are clamoring for an end to priestly celibacy. Some even blame celibacy itself for the sexual problems and abuses of some of the clergy. I want to highlight here a point that Christopher West makes in his book titled Good News About Sex and Marriage. He says this, I want to directly quote this because it is quite rich. He says, celibacy does not cause sexual disorder. Sin does. Simply getting married does not cure sexual disorder. Christ does. If a priest or any other man were to enter marriage with deep-seated sexual disorders, he would be condemning his way to a life of sexual objectification. The only way the scandal of sexual sin whether committed by priests or others, will end as if people experience the redemption of their sexuality in Christ. Beautiful. You know, I continue to find myself in numerous conversations as it relates to the priest scandal of, of 10 years ago that for all intents and purposes in the United States was resolved within the courts, I think roughly by the year 2008. The numbers are staggering, not to the extent of how many priests were found guilty, but how many priests were found not guilty. A percentage in the end that has us looking at less than 1% of the priesthood were actually found guilty. Now, one priest found guilty in a scandal such as we have witnessed should deeply sadden everyone. But it highlights something else, really. As Christopher West talks about it, this is not a problem just with the priesthood and just because a priest is celibate. Don't be mistaken. If you were to take a careful look at the statistics of pedophilia, what you find is the greater percentage of those who have been found guilty in the courtroom in cases of pedophilia are married. It has a lot more to do with the improper sexual integration of one's identity. It's interesting, just by way of footnote, as we were talking about this, there's something that often happens 
uh, when one speaks to another as it relates to the priest scandal, and quite honestly, on any topic that is against the Catholic Church, many of these topics become kind of defense mechanisms. And you can identify that right away if there's an absence of logic. You know, a, a teacher can come to me and say, well, I can't go to this priest now uh, because of what happened. I'm just suspicious of him. You're suspicious of, of the priest? You're suspicious of, of one priest because of what another priest did? I mean, today there are over 346,000 priests, and, and 1% is found guilty? So based upon that logic, okay, if you're a teacher, uh, then for all of the teachers out there, and 14% of all pedophilia cases are tied to teachers, okay? If you're a teacher and you come to me and say, well, you know, I'm suspicious of a priest, and well, based upon that logic... If one teacher, let alone 14% of all cases, are found guilty, then I say to the teacher, I have a right to be suspicious of you. You see, do you see the absence of logic? Now, again, it is, it is not to d- demean any one person who has had to carry the cross of being a part of one of those scandals. But it's, it's more for a point of clarification and ultimately how to engage the dialogue and, and to remember that, uh, you know, we need to be praying for one another so that we might be open to um, the heart of the matter. In light of this truth as we talk about it, we can stand to reflect upon an additional point here that's very, very significant to this whole topic of just not the priest scandal, but collectively celibacy. I mean, the difference between marriage and celibacy must never be understood as the difference between having a legitimate outlet for sexual lust on the one hand and ultimately having to repress it on the other. Christ calls everyone, no matter his or her particular vocation, to experience redemption from the domination of lust, right? When John Paul II and Christopher West talk about this need to have our sexuality redeemed in Christ— It is to remember, the Catechism notes in paragraph 2336 that Jesus came to restore creation to the purity of its origins. He is the incarnation of purity, and the purity of our heart is the purity that is a gift from Christ. He has come to restore purity. And when we receive this purity of Christ, first and foremost in the sacrament of baptism, We are then, what, able to see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So, within the context of this discussion of how Christ calls everyone, no matter his or her particular vocation, to experience redemption from the domination of lust, only from this perspective do the Christian vocations of celibacy and marriage make any sense. Both vocations if they are to be lived as Christ intended them to be lived, flow from that same experience of the redemption of sexual desire. It is important, as we are talking about this, to understand properly St. Paul's teaching about marriage and celibacy in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. John Paul II takes this up. St. Paul writes this, People who cannot exercise self-control should marry. For it is better to marry than to be aflame with passion. So, in light of these words, is marriage only intended for those who can't handle celibacy? 
I mean, does marriage suddenly make a person's lack of self-control lust okay? Not according to the towering figure of John Paul II. The Pope reminds us that we cannot interpret Paul's words apart from Christ's words about lust. If you were to go into the Greek, and you have heard me do this probably ad nauseum, <laughs> go into the Greek, go into the Hebrew, go into the Latin, so as to better appreciate what is actually being said by the author. This is interpreting scripture within the context of the literal sense. What is the intention of the author? What is the historical context? What is the cultural milieu? What is going on in the mind of the author? Huh? Certainly, we are to interpret sacred scripture within the context of the spiritual sense, the spiritual depth that the Holy Spirit wishes to reveal within history. If we do not interpret sacred scripture in the literal sense, then we fail to properly interpret sacred scripture. So in light of that, what is Paul saying here? The verb to be aflamed in the Greek signifies lust. Now, to marry signifies the ethical order, the call to overcome lust that St. Paul consciously introduces in this context. So according to John Paul II, it seems that St. Paul is saying something like this in the words of Christopher West. It is better to overcome lust through the grace of marriage than to remain engulfed by its flames. And that grace is the goodness of God to see the beauty in the donation of the flesh. Marriage and celibacy are much more closely related than most people realize. Both vocations provide a full answer to the meaning of sexuality. And that meaning, my friends, is self-donation in the image of God. Self-donation within the context of the icon of Christianity. As I have already noted, that passage from Ephesians 5 that we've talked about in past weeks, it bears mentioning once again that Christ on the cross is teaching us how to love and what it means to love. And we should never lose sight that in his anthropology, particular to his body, he is giving it to us totally and entirely. And this donation of the flesh is what we are to emulate, to model, and above all else in our marriages, Sharon. And just not the, the sacrament of marriage, but for priests and celibates out there, their marriage to the church. The point is that our sexuality calls us to give ourselves away in life-giving love. The celibate person does not reject this call. He simply lives it in a different way. Every man, by virtue of the spousal meaning of his body, is called in some way to be both a husband and a father. Every woman, by virtue of the spousal meaning of her body, is called in some way to be both a wife and a mother. As an image of Christ, the celibate man marries the church. Through his bodily gift of self, he bears numerous spiritual children. As an image of the church, the celibate woman marries Christ. Through her bodily gift of self, she bears numerous spiritual children. Not in the same capacity as a priest, 
But nonetheless, she takes on this kind of spiritual, mystical, maternal role. Collectively, this is why the terms husband, wife, father, mother, brother, and sister are applicable both to marriage and family life, as well as priestly and religious life. As we are talking about this vocation of celibacy and this call to be celibate alongside the beautiful sacrament of marriage, I thought it would be good to pause and to respond to that observation that many make, that uh, one vocation is greater than the other, one vocation is more superior than the other. Well, uh, what does the church say? Yeah, it is, but maybe not in the way we might be thinking about, right? Based upon the words of St. Paul, when he says, he who refrains from marriage will do better, the church has traditionally taught that celibacy is an objectively superior vocation. And as Christopher West notes, and I think he speaks this beautifully in his Theology of the Body for Beginners, this must be understood with great care, lest we fall into serious error. Many have erroneously concluded that if celibacy is, if celibacy is so good, marriage must be so bad. If refraining from sex makes one pure and holy, having sex, even in marriage, must make one tainted and dirty. This is absolutely not the mind of the church. Such devaluations of marriage and sexual union should not be in the vocabulary of how we talk about the sacrament of marriage. John Paul II makes it perfectly clear the superiority of celibacy for the kingdom of God to matrimony in the authentic tradition of the church never means disparagement of marriage or belittlement of its essential value. In the authentic teaching of the church, St. John Paul II in Theology of the Body makes it clear we do not find any basis whatsoever for the disparagement of marriage. Celibacy, though, is the exceptional calling because marriage remains the normal calling in this life. Celibacy is that leaning upon that supernatural grace. Marriage, while it is filled with grace, certainly is tied to the more natural law. It is better not because of celibacy itself, but because it is chosen for the kingdom of God. It is better in the sense that the heavenly marriage to which celibates devote themselves more directly is superior to the earthly marriage. For our own understanding in how we pass on uh, these points of theology of the body, we would be well served if we best understood it that way. Christian celibacy gives those who live it authentically an even more intense foretaste of the communion to come with God and with all the saints we have already talked about. It gives the, the priest, the religious, a more intense foretaste of that great uh, verse, Revelation 19.7, marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, does this mean if we really wanted to follow God, we would all be celibates? No. <laughs> As St. Paul writes, each has his own special gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. We must carefully and prayerfully discern which gift God has given us if we have not yet chosen that gift. Subjectively speaking, the better vocation, if you want to put in that terms, 
is the one God calls us to as our own personal gift. If marriage is your gift, rejoice. And if, you're, if you are in that sacrament of marriage, lean upon that grace. Become a saint in your sacrament that God has put before you. This is your path to happiness. If celibacy is your gift, rejoice. This is your path to happiness. The grass is always greener on the other side. It is the great temptation of the adversary to say you should have been this or you should have been that. Embrace the gift that God has given to you. And that gift is the present moment to either discern your vocation or if, you, if your vocation has been discerned, how to live that vocation out more faithfully each and every day. As I'm looking up at the clock and seeing that we are almost out of time, I thought as we were talking about this great topic, we would be well served to close with a brief reflection on the Holy Family, in particular, uh, Mary and Joseph, as John Paul II does. Joseph and Mary remain virgins, not because sex is bad, as some might think. As a married couple, they were given the exceptional calling to live their sexuality according to its ultimate meaning, total self-donation to God. By embracing that heavenly dimension of sexuality on earth, they enabled heaven to penetrate earth. Celibacy for the kingdom is a call to serve God and the church more fully. Forgoing earthly marriage to devote oneself entirely to the heavenly marriage, what foreshadows the ultimate purpose of our life, union with God in heaven. Amen. This relationship between Joseph and Mary must have been caught up 24-7, 365 in that highest form, that highest expression of love we have talked about in past weeks, in that agape, that sacrificial love, that love which is defined on the cross, Christ pouring himself out in his flesh on the cross. How fascinating is it for you and I to think about, to speculate how the infant king, how Jesus in his adolescent years must have been receiving and taking in that perpetual agape love from his parents. His mother, who is perfect, pouring herself out for her husband. Her husband, who is this noble, just, holy man, constant in pouring himself out to his bride. And how our Lord, how he must have just been drinking all of this in, learning the language of agape. You know, I am a father of four, and I am fascinated, most fascinated, by the impact that I have upon my children, most especially the way in which my children watch the way in which I love my wife, and vice versa. When you take stock into the language of the family and how they are drawn together, it always starts with that unspoken communication, that communication that we talked about in opening weeks, that communication that comes through the language of the body. Our kids not only watch everything, see everything, they absorb everything. And if they are doing so as children who are imperfect, 
how all the more must Christ have been who is perfect, receiving, seeing, absorbing that great love shared between Joseph and Mary. Most powerful. Let us close in prayer. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 6.30 p.m. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.